Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi there, listener. You're hearing the archive presentation in six parts of our classic episode covering the work, life, and strange experiences of famed sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. This episode also covers associated topics like Christian Gnosticism, physicalist and dualist views of consciousness, the thousands of pages of philosophical ramblings that Dick wrote in the last years of his life, and how in many ways, thanks to his visionary fiction, we are all living in the reality that PKD made. We're dropping one part into our feed for each of the next six weeks. If you'd prefer to hear all of this in one big MP3, it's available as episode 18 in the show feed. But we know that some of you out there prefer our modern, digestible chunks approach to show delivery, digestible chunks approach to show delivery over our original huge topics and multi-hour marathons approach, so this is an opportunity to check out some of the older stuff in short doses while we work up brand new stuff. You'll start hearing those new episodes in January of 2024, and we hope in the meantime, these will tide you over. You can reach us at theparanoidstrain.com, email theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, join our friendly group at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash theparanoidstrain, and if you're so inclined, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash theparanoidstrain. And now, please relax as our pink light penetrates your brain. Don't worry, that analogy will make sense after you listen. Jesuit, out. As we just heard, many researchers these days are purely physicalists. They say essentially that minds are what brains do. Dr. Ramachandran definitely falls into this category, and we'll meet other proponents later. But let's spend a bit of time contemplating the problems with a purely physicalist solution. And no, this isn't coming from Descartes or George Barclay. Last episode. Or anyone else who's basing his or her argument on the idea of God and an immortal soul. Rather, we're going to consider secular perspectives that have proved to be a real pain in the ass for pure physicalists with regard to the mind-body problem. And much of that pain was delivered via a particular ass-kicking paper, coincidentally published in the key PKD year of 1974, by the influential philosopher Thomas Nagel. It's called, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? We're going to take a few minutes to talk about this essay, because if you're anything like us, it will be a real eye-opener on topics you've never thought about in your life. To start, Nagel establishes a provocative thesis. Without consciousness, the mind-body problem would be much less interesting. 
With consciousness, it seems hopeless. That is, the only reason we even think there is such a thing as the mind-body problem is because we're conscious, and yet our best scientific reductionist tools have been really shitty at explaining why our brains, which seem to be highly complex biomechanical chemical processing engines, should happen to produce such a thing as consciousness at all. But still, we're conscious. It is, as Descartes pointed out, the only thing we can know for certain. So why is that brute fact so hard to pin down through the scientific tools that have served us so well in other areas? Nagel begins his truly novel argument this way. The fact that an organism has conscious experience at all means, basically, that there is something it is like to be that organism. This seems intuitively obvious, and we know to a near certainty, based on rigorous experiments, that consciousness is not exclusive to humans. Other mammals definitely share some aspects of what we mean by the term. The idea of a self as distinct from the rest of the world, or even from others who are, like us, members of the same species, etc. So then, Nagel asks us, if consciousness is purely reducible to mental states, then is it possible for us to know what it is to be a bat? His point is not, as he is at pains to note, asking us to consider what it would be like to fly or hang upside down or eat insects or be nocturnal, yada yada. Those imaginative questions only ask what it would be like for you or me to be a bat. What he's asking is, what's it like for a bat to be a bat? Wait, wait, what? Yeah, that confusion is kind of his point. After all, while bats share the vast majority of our evolution, they're profoundly different from humans. To quote the man himself, Even without the benefit of philosophical reflection, anyone who has spent some time in an enclosed space with an excited bat knows what it is to encounter a fundamentally alien form of life. So the question is, what is it like for a bat to be a bat? Note that you can't simply answer this by describing the neural pathways that, for example, allow a bat to use a sort of biological radar to sense and eat flying insects. And as we noted before, it's not a matter of imagining ourselves doing bat things. It's asking, what is it like when a bat does bat things? Oh, shit. Now that you mention it, I have no fucking idea. And this is Nagel's point, that for all of the many wondrous advances that neuroscience has made in past decades, it has come no closer to being able to give us a model that would convey batness the way that we all intrinsically experience humanness. Which means, he suggests, that potentially... One might also believe that there are facts which could never ever be represented or comprehended by human beings, even if the species lasted forever, simply because our structure does not permit us to operate with concepts of the requisite type. So while a secular philosopher like Nagel may not accept the God-did-it hypothesis, there remains in his argument space for some sort of not-yet-identified, potentially non-physical in the normal sense, and therefore potentially immaterial, mind. This undefined mind would be an important part of consciousness that is connected to, but apart from, the three pounds of structured jelly that is the human brain. While provocative, this perspective runs counter to the tremendous strides that the purely physical explanation of mental states has made over recent decades. As Dr. Ramachandran's work demonstrates, there's a lot of rigorous evidence on the purely physical side. That is, the brain appears to be the entire seat of human consciousness. The best evidence being the fact that a variety of conditions that affect the brain can completely change a person's subjective experience. From the man himself. Any or all of the different aspects of self can be differentially disturbed in brain disease, which leads me to believe that the self comprises not just one thing, but many. Like love or happiness, we use one word, self, to lump together many different phenomena. For example, if you stimulate your right parietal cortex with an electrode, you will momentarily feel that you are floating near the ceiling, watching your own body down below. 
you have an out-of-body experience. The embodiment of self, one of the axiomatic foundations of yourself, is temporarily abandoned. And this is true of all those aspects of self. Each of them can be selectively affected in brain disease. He also hints that, in the end, deep empirical analysis may lead to the conclusion that there is not actually much of a difference between the self and others. That in a Buddhist or Hindu sense, the unitary self is an illusion. There's lots more fun stuff in Ramachandran's work. For example, he points to deliberate lying as one of the best tests for whether a person is capable of truly advanced mental function, as lying involves not only modeling someone else's mind, but also reflecting on one's own consciousness. He connects the most notably distinct primate-only mental abilities. That is, the skills we seem to share only with our closest ape relatives. To the profusion in great apes like us of so-called mirror neurons. His research indicates that the overabundance of these in human brains relates directly to our experience of consciousness, especially insofar as we are more advanced in these areas compared to other primates. In fact, he argues, this discovery offers a tantalizing idea of how human culture came to achieve such breathtaking complexity. One recent discovery that has been made by researchers in Italy, in Parma, by Giacomo Rizzolati and his colleagues, is a group of neurons called mirror neurons, which are in the front of the brain, in the frontal lobes. Now, it turns out there are neurons which are called ordinary motor command neurons in the front of the brain, which have been known for over 50 years. These neurons will fire when a person performs a specific action. For example, if I do that and reach and grab an apple, a motor command neuron in the front of my brain will fire. If I reach out and pull an object, another neuron will fire, commanding me to pull, my, pull that object. These are called motor command neurons that have been known for a long time. But what Rizzolati found was a subset of these neurons, maybe about 20% of them, will also fire when I'm looking at somebody else performing the same action. So here's a neuron that fires when I reach and grab something, but it also fires when I watch Joe reaching and grabbing something. And this is truly astonishing because it's as though this neuron is adopting the other person's point of view. And it's almost as though it's performing a virtual reality simulation of the other person's action. Now, what is the significance of these mirror neurons? For one thing, they must be involved in things like imitation and emulation, because to imitate a complex act requires my brain to adopt the other person's point of view. So this is important for imitation and emulation. Well, why is that important? Well, let's take a look at the next slide. So how do you do imitation? Why is imitation important? Mirror neurons and imitation and emulation. Now, let's look at culture, the phenomenon of human culture. If you go back in time about 75 to 100,000 years ago, let's look at human evolution. It turns out there's something very important happened around 75,000 years ago, and that is there's a sudden emergence and rapid spread of a number of skills that are unique to human beings, like, like tool use, the use of fire, the use of shelters, and of course language, and the ability to read somebody else's mind and interpret that person's behavior. All of that happened relatively quickly. Even though the human brain had achieved its present size almost three or 400,000 years ago, 100,000 years ago, all of this happened very, very quickly. And I claim that what happened was the sudden emergence of a sophisticated mirror neuron system, which allowed you to emulate and imitate other people's actions. So that when there was a sudden uh, accidental discovery by one member of the group, say use a fire or a particular type of tool, instead of dying out, this spread rapidly horizontally across the population or was transmitted vertically down the generations. So this made evolution suddenly Lamarckian instead of Darwinian. In Darwinian evolution is slow, it takes hundreds of thousands of years. A polar bear to evolve a coat will take thousands of generations, maybe 100,000 years. A human being, a child can just watch its parent kill uh, another polar bear 
and skin it and put the skin on its body, fur on the body, and learn it in one step. What the polar bear took 100,000 years to learn, it can learn in five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, right? And then once it's learned this, it spreads by in geometric proportion across the population. And this is the basis of this imitation of complex skills, is what we call culture and is the basis of civilization. Now there's another kind of mirror neuron, which is involved in something quite different, and that is, there are mirror neurons, just as there are mirror neurons for action, there are mirror neurons for touch. In other words, if somebody touches me, my hand, a neuron in the somatosensory cortex, in the sensory region of the brain, fires. But the same neuron, in some cases, will fire when, when I simply watch another person being touched. So it's empathizing the other person being touched. So most of them will fire when I'm touched in different locations, different neuron for different locations, but a subset of them will fire even when I watch somebody else being touched in the same location. So here again, you have neurons which are involved in empathy. Now the question then arises, if I simply watch another person being touched, why do I not get confused and literally feel that touch sensation merely by watching somebody being touched? I mean, I empathize with that person, but I don't literally feel the touch. Well, that's because you've got receptors in your skin, touch and pain receptors, going back into your brain and saying, don't worry, you're not being touched. So empathize by all means with the other person, but do not actually experience the touch, otherwise you'll get confused and muddled. Okay, so there's a feedback signal that vetoes the signal of the mirror neuron, preventing you from consciously experiencing that touch. But if you remove the arm, you simply anesthetize my arm. So you put an injection into my arm, anesthetize the brachial plexus, so the arm is numb, there's no sensations coming in. If I now watch you being touched, I literally feel it in my hand. In other words, you've dissolved the barrier between you and other human beings. So I call them Gandhi neurons or empathy neurons. <laughs> and this is not in some abstract metaphorical sense. All that's separating you from him, from the other person, is your skin. Remove the skin, you experience that person's touch in your mind. You've dissolved the barrier between you and other human beings. And this, of course, is the basis of much of Eastern philosophy, and that is there's no real independent self aloof from other human beings inspecting the world and inspecting other people. You're, in fact, connected, not just via Facebook and Internet. You're actually quite literally connected by your neurons, and there's whole chains of neurons around this room talking to each other, and there is no real distinctiveness of, of your consciousness from some else's consciousness. And this is not mumbo-jumbo philosophy. It emerges from our understanding of basic neuroscience. So in essence, the development of neurons capable of not only mimicking, but in fact providing likely explanations for the current and even future behavior of other individuals, then powered a new phase of evolution via a shared trove of experience and preference that could be passed from one individual to another. And this concept of mirroring others then eventually developed what we think of now as the human self or consciousness. Again, Ramachandran. What sets us apart from other mammals, including other primates, is a set of circuits. These structures are for consciousness what chromosomes and DNA were for heredity. Know how they perform the individual operations, how they interact, and you will know what it means to be a conscious human being. So, how did this happen? Well, scientists are still figuring that out, but in Ramachandran's book The Telltale Brain, the evolution of human consciousness resulted when earlier, more rudimentary abilities that allowed rats to simulate and respond to representations of external objects, like cats, developed further. There emerged a second brain, a set of nerve connections to be exact, that creates representations of representations, a higher order of abstraction, by processing the information from that first brain into manageable chunks that can be used for a wider repertoire of more sophisticated responses. But still, even the good doctor himself notes that explaining the lived, felt experience of consciousness is a real quandary and requires more research. So that's our neuroscientist. 
Let's return to the philosophers now, and two current heavyweights of the consciousness-slash-self-debate who will now battle it out for your enjoyment. First, we'll define our terms. We're going to hear arguments about the so-called hard problem of consciousness. And what exactly is said problem? To answer, we'll hear briefly from one of our debaters, whom we'll introduce in a moment. The hard problem of consciousness is the problem of how physical processes in the brain give rise to the subjective experience of the mind and of the world. If you look at the brain from the outside, you see this extraordinary machine, um, an organ consisting of 84 billion neurons that fire in synchrony with each other. When I see visual inputs come to my eyes, photons hit my eyes, they send a signal that goes up the optic nerve to the back of my brain, it sends neural firings propagating throughout my brain, and eventually I might produce an action. From the outside, though, I look like a complicated mechanism, a robot. This is how science might describe me from the objective point of view. But there's also a subjective point of view. There's what it feels like for the agent who is seeing the scene. When I see you, I see colors, I see shapes, I have an experience from a first-person point of view. There's something it's like to be me. And this is the conscious experience of seeing. It's part of the inner movie of the mind. This inner movie has many, many dimensions. It has the dimension of vision. It has the dimension of sound, like a normal movie. But it also has touch and taste and smell, it has emotions, it has thought, it has a sense of one's body. All of this is subjective experience. And it's one of the most familiar facts in the world that we have this subjective experience. But it's also one of the most mysterious. Why is it that these physical processes in the brain should produce subjective experience? Why doesn't it go on in the dark, without any consciousness at all? No one right now knows the answer to this question. So in the Put it that way, that is a really interesting question. Glad you agree. So let's hear next from somebody who doesn't think it's a problem, like, at all. In this corner, bald, bewhiskered, and arguing for a purely material explanation of the epiphenomenon of consciousness, Dan the Man Dan. The mind is what the brain does. It's a material organ, just as your lungs and your heart are material organs. And we have to explain all the goings-on in the mind in terms of the interactions of those material parts, those 86 billion neurons that are attached to each other and sending all those signals. Because what happened is theorists gave up dualism long ago, but they kept part of Descartes. They decided there was still a place in the brain where it all came together for the show. It was just somewhere in the brain. So this is this imaginary place, the Cartesian theater. So the light comes in, it exposes the film, the film is then uh, developed and dried off with a little fan and then it's projected onto a screen, ta-da, ta-da, where there are two homunculi in there to look at the screen and to appreciate the show. 
We're jumping in here to clarify that in the video that accompanies this audio, he's showing an image of a bunch of little people who are displaying a movie to other little people inside a human head. These are the homunculi in an artist's rendition. They represent the mind in a dualistic view of the mind-body problem, which is the thing that Dennett is making fun of. No use having a screen unless you have an appreciator. You've got to have an audience, an inner witness, to go along with the inner show. There is no inner show. And there is no single inner witness. You know, we've looked in the brain, just in case you wondered. There is not a little man in the brain. Well then, here's the moral of the story. The work done by the homunculus in the Cartesian theater must all be distributed in both space and time within the brain. That's what cognitive science is working on. What lies in the middle it's what we might call a virtual self. It's a self made of information. It's a data structure which can handle information. That yourself is the center of narrative gravity. It's an abstraction. It's, if you like, a user illusion. But a very important one and a very useful one. Giulio Giorello, who wrote an article, an interview with me in Corriera della Sera some years ago, and the headline the next day was, Si, abbiamo un'anima. My father, the tanti piccoli robot. Yes, we have a soul, but it's made of lots of tiny robots. <laughs> I thought, yes, that's it. That's right. We have a soul made of information. Some people really hate this idea. My old friend Jerry Fodor says this If, in short, there's a community of computers living in my head, There'd also better be somebody who's in charge, and by God, it'd better be me. <laughs> if you still have an emperor in your theory of consciousness and experiencing something, then you haven't even begun. You've simply postponed the theory because you've still got the conscious emperor in there. Now, some people, for instance, David Chalmers, a uh, uh, well-known critic of mine, says just the opposite. So, there we have the purely physicalist interpretation. And in this corner, with a mane like a proud lion and a disarmingly friendly Australian accent, as you heard a few minutes ago, David Chalmers. Chalmers is probably the leading proponent in modern philosophy of the most popular alternative approach to Dennett's. Which is not to say that he has a solid theory. He just thinks Dennett's nothing but physical explanation leaves a lot to be desired. So the easy problems are, you know, how is it, for example, we discriminate information in our environment and respond appropriately? How does the brain integrate information from different sources and bring it together to make a judgment and control behavior? How indeed do we voluntarily control behavior to respond in a controlled way to our environment? How does our brain monitor its own states? These are all big mysteries. And actually, neuroscience has not gotten all that far on some of these, uh, of these problems. They're, um, they're all quite difficult. But in those cases, we have a pretty clear sense of what the research program is and what it would take to explain them. It's basically a matter of finding some mechanism in the brain that, for example, is responsible for discriminating the information and controlling the behavior. And Although it's, uh, it's pretty hard work finding the mechanism, we're on a path 
to doing that. So a neural mechanism for discriminating information, a computational mechanism for the brain to monitor its own states, um, and, and so on. So for the easy problems, they at least fall within the standard methods of the brain and cognitive sciences. We're basically, we're trying to explain some kind of function and we just find a mechanism. The hard problem, what makes the hard problem of experience hard is it doesn't really seem to be a problem about behavior or about functions. You could, you could in principle imagine explaining all of my behavioral responses to a given stimulus and how my brain discriminates and integrates and monitors itself and controls. You could explain all that with, say, a neural mechanism, and you might not have touched the central question, which is why does it feel like something from the first-person point of view? That just doesn't seem to be a problem about explaining behaviors and explaining functions. And as a result, the usual methods that work for us so well in the brain and cognitive sciences, finding a mechanism that does the job, just doesn't obviously apply here. We're going to get correlations. We're certainly finding correlations between processes in the brain and bits of consciousness, an area of the brain that might light up when you see red or when you, uh, when you feel pain. But nothing there seems yet to be giving us an explanation. Why does all that processing feel like something from the inside? Why, does it, why doesn't it go on just in the dark, as if we were giant robots um, or zombies without any subjective experience? From that point, people react in different ways. Someone like Dan Dennett says, ah, it's all an illusion or a confusion and one that we need to, uh, to get past. And I, mean, I respect that line. I think it's a hard enough problem that we need to be exploring every, uh, every avenue here. And one avenue that's very much worth exploring is the, the view that it's an illusion. But there is something kind of faintly unbelievable about the whole idea that the data of consciousness here are an illusion. To me, they're the most real thing in the uh, universe, you know, the feeling of pain, the experience of vision or of thinking. So it's a very, um, it's a very hard line to take the line that Dan Dennett takes. He, took, he wrote a book, Consciousness Explained, back in the early 90s, where he tried to take that line. It was, very, it was a very good and very influential book, but I think most people have, have found that at the end of the day, it just doesn't seem to do justice to the phenomenon. To be so who's right? We really don't know. But Ramachandran's work makes us think that there's a good chance that as neuroscience advances, it may provide increasingly robust responses to the Chalmers side of the debate, even if Dennett's current conclusions don't end up proved in all of their particulars. No matter which view you find more convincing, it's really kind of weird to think about. And philosophers just keep piling up the strangeness. Take, for example, the concept of qualia. To quote the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, these are the introspectively accessible phenomenal aspects of our mental lives. In less jargony terms, qualia are the experience of what it is like for a conscious being, that is a self, to have an experience. Take, for example, the qualia of red. Wait, wait, wait. Are you drifting back into the, well, how can we really know if the color you see is the same color I see, stoner boy? No, no, no. Trust me, this is heady stuff. So certainly we can agree that the physical characteristics that render something as red exist in the real world. That is, it's the tendency of an object to reflect light at a certain wavelength that our eyes then perceive as red. But in reality, the entire existence of redness is completely dependent on human minds as near as we can tell. Wait, you just acknowledged it was a wavelength thing. Yeah, in a sense, but think about it. 
The light that reflects off a red delicious in the produce aisle hits the back of your eye and then rods and cones respond, stimulating chemicals that then turn into neural signals in your brain. But as Bagot points out, this is where we're stuck. There's no redness in the photons of light, in the stimulation of your rods and cones, or in the stimulated parts of your brain. The uncomfortable conclusion here is that red is not a thing that exists in reality outside of your brain. In other words, the qualia of red is something your brain is superimposing on whatever we can call reality. The same goes for music, smells, texture. In the absence of minds to perceive them, it appears they wouldn't exist. Or to quote Ramachandran, You can't have free-floating sensations or qualia with no one to experience them. And you can't have a self completely devoid of sensory experiences, memories, or emotions. This sense of qualia as an inexplicable yet inextricable aspect of what we experience as true consciousness was put forward as an argument against the philosophical idea of physicalism, or the idea that everything that exists, including mental states, can be explained by matter. The classic philosophical experiment here is called Mary's Room and was originally formulated in 1982 by Frank Jackson. Here it's retold via a cool animated video on YouTube. Anyone who thinks this doesn't know Mary. She is the leading expert on the perception of color. She knows all about wavelengths, about the retina of the eye, and about how the brain processes visual stimuli. She knows all of the scientific facts and every single detail of what happens when we see color. There is one thing, though. Mary herself has never seen a colored object. Neither a red tomato, nor the blue sky. Ever since she was born, she has been in a room where there is no color. Her clothes are black and white, and her hair is black. She has only experienced black, white, and gray. She has learned everything she knows about the world and about color perception from reading books. But here's the kicker, as articulated by Jackson. What will happen when Mary is released from her black and white room or is given a color television monitor? Will she learn anything or not? Think about it. Kind of tough to say, right? While Chalmers has seen this concept as a cornerstone of his argument that reducing consciousness to physical phenomena is deeply flawed, as you might expect, Ramachandran has a solid counterargument based on his experience working with a patient who has a particular brain disease that illuminates how a normally functioning brain works. His example is an experimental subject who is both colorblind and a synesthete. That is, one of a rare group of people who see certain mental phenomena, musical notes, numbers, etc., as being associated with a specific sensory experience like color, smell, taste. The number two might have a certain color, musical tone, or scent to these folks. You get the idea. What Ramachandran and his collaborators note is that while the subject sees only shades of gray from his optic nerve, his synesthesia causes him to see various colors in association with numbers that he describes as Martian colors. Because he's never experienced them as part of the everyday black and white world he actually sees through his eyes. Thus, Ramachandran believes, neuroscience has addressed the Mary's room conundrum. The answer is simply that Mary, leaving the black and white room with normal vision, will acquire a new ability, not new knowledge. But Bagot, our beginner's guide to reality, dude, points out there are some problems with this purely material approach to explaining qualia and other niceties of consciousness. If logic demands that you reject the reality of secondary qualities of physical objects, and again, that's everything from color to taste, smell, texture, etc., you have to question the reality of their primary qualities too. 
After all, if you're going to reject all of the information about the physical world delivered to your mind by your senses, and using your senses is the only way you can gain information about the physical world, then surely that means rejecting everything. A prominent scientist who also takes a chalmerian Bagotian line is Donald Hoffman, who in the argument you're about to hear takes a stance that consciousness first is the only approach to the universe that makes any sense. But the relationship between brain activity and conscious experiences is still a mystery. Why? Why have we made so little progress? I think we've simply made a false assumption. Once we fix it, we just might solve this problem. Let's begin with a question. Do we see reality as it is? I open my eyes, and I have an experience that I describe as a red tomato a meter away. As a result, I come to believe that in reality, there's a red tomato a meter away. I then close my eyes, and my experience changes to a gray field. But is it still the case that in reality, there's a red tomato a meter away? I think so. But could I be wrong? Could I be misinterpreting the nature of my perceptions? Well, neuroscientists tell us that about a third of the brain's cortex is engaged in vision. When you simply open your eyes and look about this room, billions of neurons and trillions of synapses are engaged. Now, this is a bit surprising, because to the extent that we think about vision at all, we think of it as like a camera that just takes a picture of objective reality as it is. Now, there is a part of vision that's like a camera. The eye has a lens that focuses an image on the back of the eye, where there are 130 million photoreceptors. So the eye is like a 130-megapixel camera. But that doesn't explain the billions of neurons and trillions of synapses that are engaged in vision. What are these neurons up to? Well, neuroscientists tell us that they're creating, in real time, all the shapes, objects, colors, and motions that we see. It feels like we're just taking a snapshot of this room the way it is, but in fact, we're constructing everything that we see. We don't construct the whole world at once. We construct what we need in the moment. But neuroscientists go further. They say that we reconstruct reality. So when I have an experience that I describe as a red tomato, that experience is actually an accurate reconstruction of the properties of a real red tomato that would exist even if I weren't looking. Now, why would neuroscientists say that we don't just construct, we reconstruct? Well, the standard argument given is usually an evolutionary one. Those of our ancestors who saw more accurately had a competitive advantage compared to those who saw less accurately, and therefore they were more likely to pass on their genes. We're the offspring of those who saw more accurately, and so we can be confident that, in the normal case, our perceptions are accurate. So the idea is that accurate perceptions are fitter perceptions. They give you a survival advantage. Now, is this correct? Does natural selection really favor seeing reality as it is? Fortunately, we don't have to wave our hands and guess. Evolution is a mathematically precise theory. We can use the equations of evolution to check this out. We can have various organisms and artificial worlds compete and see which survive and which thrive, which sensory systems are more fit. So in my lab, 
we have run hundreds of thousands of evolutionary game simulations with lots of different randomly chosen worlds and organisms that compete for resources in those worlds. Some of the organisms see all of the reality, others see just part of the reality, and some see none of the reality, only fitness. Who wins? Well, I hate to break it to you, but perception of reality goes extinct. In almost every simulation, organisms that see none of reality but are just tuned to fitness drive to extinction all the organisms that perceive reality as it is. So the bottom line is evolution does not favor vertical or accurate perceptions. Those perceptions of reality go extinct. Now this is a bit stunning. How can it be that not seeing the world accurately gives us a survival advantage? That is a bit counterintuitive. What the equations of evolution are telling us is that all organisms, including us, we do not see reality as it is. We're shaped with tricks and hacks that keep us alive. So the idea is that evolution has given us an interface that hides reality and guides adaptive behavior. Evolution has shaped us with perceptual symbols that are designed to keep us alive. We better take them seriously. If you see a snake, don't pick it up. If you see a cliff, don't jump off. They're designed to keep us safe, and we should take them seriously. But that does not mean that we should take them literally. That's a logical error. Another objection. Now, there's nothing really new here. Physicists have told us for a long time that the metal of that train looks solid, but really it's mostly empty space with microscopic particles zipping around. There's nothing new here. Those microscopic particles are still in space and time. They're still in the user interface. So I'm saying something far more radical than those physicists. When I have an experience that I describe as a lion or a steak, I'm interacting with reality, but that reality is not a lion or a steak. And here's the kicker. When I have a perceptual experience that I describe as a brain or neurons, I am interacting with reality, but that reality is not a brain or neurons, and it's nothing like a brain or neurons. And that reality, whatever it is, is the real source of cause and effect in the world. Not brains, not neurons. Brains and neurons have no causal powers. They cause none of our perceptual experiences and none of our behavior. Brains and neurons are a species-specific set of symbols, a hack. What does this mean? for the mystery of consciousness? Well, it opens up new possibilities. For instance, perhaps reality is some vast machine that causes our conscious experiences. I doubt this, but it's worth exploring. Perhaps reality is some vast interacting network of conscious agents, simple and complex, that cause each other's conscious experiences. Actually, this isn't as crazy an idea as it seems, and I'm currently exploring it. But, but here's the point. Once we let go of our massively intuitive but massively false assumption about the nature of reality, it opens up new ways to think about life's greatest mystery. I bet that reality will end up turning out to be more fascinating and unexpected than we'd ever imagined. The theory of evolution presents us with the ultimate dare. 
dare to recognize that perception is not about seeing truth. It's about having kids. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.